Welcome to another episode of Running on Optimism, the podcast for amateur runners, or really anyone, channeling their inspiration to face challenges in running and life. I'm your host, Sonia Rita. In today's episode, Chris Heimerman, host of the podcast, 40,000 Steps Radio, shares with us his deeply personal journey to sobriety. Chris is an incredible advocate and resource for those struggling with addiction. He and I really dive into a lot in this conversation and what running meant for him before and after deciding it was time for him to seek help in battling alcoholism. Well, I'm here with Chris Heimerman, and part of what draws me to your story is that your fitness and running journey, um, I mean, all of our fitness and running journeys look different, but it was not, it's as you've mentioned before in your podcast, it's your medicine, but it is not what kind of brought you to a place where you can battle your, um, it wasn't what brought you to rehab, for instance. Um, so let's get started. Tell me a little bit about your story. And actually the very first question, when was your first marathon? Cause I kind of want to put that in the timeline of your story. Oh goodness. Uh, yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, would have been because I was training for it when I worked at the newspaper. It would have been spring of 2000. This is something I should know right off the top of my head, but I believe it was spring of 2012. Okay. And that was the first of my five and the first of my wife's eight. Okay. Awesome. So spring of 2012 was your very first marathon. Mm-hmm. So let's with that in mind, in the timeline of all the things that you have conquered and done, um, tell me a little bit about your story. Yeah, absolutely. I running for me came a little bit late in life. I remember like I, I ran cross country my freshman year of high school, hated it. I was already, I had a ton of social anxiety, so it just, it, it didn't fit. I tried a couple of times during college and that was more so just like, I knew that I was, you know, drinking a lot and doing a lot of things that were horrible for my body. So it's like, let's get out for the occasional run. Right. Um, but it was really first, like in my mid twenties, mid to late twenties, around the time that I met my wife, that I was living in this town of 10,843 people. And I lived next door to this, to, to like this gargantuan cemetery. I remember this vividly. And I would go for the occasional three mile run. And then it became the occasional four mile. And, 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 you know, people know how this goes. And it really, I didn't have like any 5Ks in mind. It was just a matter of, it gave me a little bit of peace of mind and it was good for my mental health. And then when I got together with who would be, who would eventually be my wife, it became a shared passion. It became something that we did together. And over the years, like we kept building it up and building it up until it got to the point where we did a half marathon in 2009. And then in 2011, we decided let's, you know, let's, let's go full Monty with this thing and try to do, you know, the full marathon. And it was hard. I hit the wall very hard at mile 20 and went through the exact same thing that everybody goes through where I could barely get into the car afterward the day after the marathon, we, our bedroom was upstairs in the house we were renting. And I had to go down each step on my butt one at a time. Cause my legs could not support me. And I was like, I'm done. Cross it off the bucket list. I'm done. 
And then within a couple of days, it was, it was like, okay, I want to, I want to do that a little bit faster next time. So immediately we started looking for another one. Um, but yeah, it, it was very much, it was very much about managing my mental health and a shared passion. And over the years, it served me really well in, in terms of managing my mental health. Uh, but like you mentioned, you know, it was not, you know, it was not the be all end all for me running very much became sort of this red herring that because I was running, I felt like I was always okay. Mm-hmm. Like when I got and I know we're going to talk about it when I really got into alcoholism, it was like, I would go for my 14, 15, 16 mile run over the weekend and feel like whoosh, out with the toxins everything's good. I've got it. And then Monday it would be right back down the spiral. So yeah, it's, it's, it's been a journey and it wasn't until I went through rehab that running started doing for me what it should have been doing. And it stopped being like a, like a form of self-flagellation and like an illusion for me. And it really started serving me the way that running should, if that makes sense. Absolutely. That makes perfect sense. It, like you said, it was a red herring. It was the thing you held on to. Hey, look at me. I ran. Obviously I'm okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that you talk a lot about, um, you know, bit by bit through your podcast, but also in the episode where you talk, um, where you share your story, if you could share a little bit of your story um, as much as you feel comfortable sharing. Oh. And so that we can get a better understanding of how it is that you used running to mask your alcohol dependence. Um, Because I think that in the world of running, there's so many people who will go dry, for instance, they have a race coming up and they'll go dry. And that's sort of, Mm -hmm. there's all of that um, mentality going through the running community. So how did you come, you know, you were a functional alcoholic. So tell us a little bit about it. To to the utmost. Um, And running was just one piece of that. You know, I was married to an extraordinary woman, still am somehow. Uh, we have beautiful, brilliant daughters who are who are now eight. And I was the editor of a daily newspaper, which comes with a certain amount of credibility, you know, uh, running marathons. Like on the surface, it was like everything was on the up and up. Um, and it, it's funny because like before I started doing the advocacy thing, you know, I was looking around at others like Charlie Engel, like people who have run across the Sahara Desert and, you know, af- after being, you know, hooked on cocaine and, and doing, it's dangerous to say this, but doing hard drugs because um, alcohol for a guy like me is a hard drug. Um, but so I was looking around at a lot of other folks and saying, well, who is going to care about my story, my Mickey Mouse problems? which is an incredibly dangerous comparison game to play. But I talked with a friend of mine and she was like, well, the, the reason why your story needs to be shared is because there are millions and millions of people suffering in plain sight, just like you were. Um, so yes, running for me was very much that I could point to that and say, as long as I'm getting my runs in, as long as I'm getting out of bed at you know, five, five 30 in the morning and going to the gym and getting my runs in everything's okay. Uh, so yeah, running was very much a masking agent. Um, and you know, I, I went through rehab in, in spring of 2019 and that was where it was made clear to me that 
if I addressed my mental health properly, I'd have a puncher's chance against alcohol because I've struggled with depression and anxiety all of my life. And as the years went by, you know, alcohol became, and for, for a few years, marijuana, it was all a way to just numb and to cope. And so it was, you know, going through rehab and being told that it, look, if you manage your mental health, that's the root of your problem. At that point, it was like all of like the guilt and shame of feeling like I'm a bad person because I'm an alcoholic. Now, I'm going to say that it was all washed away, but it was this huge weight that came off of my shoulders. And so, yeah, it became clear to me that like I was seeing a therapist and taking my medications, but who'd have thunk it? They weren't doing what they were supposed to do because alcohol was running interference all the time. But I'd convinced myself that I was flushing out the alcohol. And so, you know, and so that that was enough that everything should have been working and clearing things up. So it, it is funny, though, like I it, even when I was in rehab, I, I continued to uh, to run at like five in the morning. What little allotted time I had, <laughs> I actually had like the, the manager of the unit at one point pulled me aside. and He's like, you, you, you can't be running every day. It's dangerous for somebody who just quit, you know, heavy drinking. Um, but I kept doing it because I knew that the day after I was set to be discharged, I was, I was, you know, set to run a marathon. <laughs> so, um, yeah. And I, I want to talk about that marathon, but I have a question. Why would please. running every day be dangerous for someone? Just, I mm. completely curious. Why would that no, be dangerous? That's good. Uh, because anytime that, uh, you stop doing something altogether, whether it be alcohol or drugs or eating quarter pounders with cheese, anytime that you cut something off cold turkey um, and then start taking proper medications as I did, it was like my body was very much in flux. Like I, I remember it took about a week for my hand to stop tremoring, which was a whole thing you know, because of how heavily I was drinking. So for instance, this is why, let me just drop this like nugget of knowledge. And look, I always say I'm not a counselor or anything. I just play one on a podcast. Um, if you, you know, are, are drinking heavily or doing anything heavily and you, if you're going to quit cold Turkey, you need to have support. You need to have somebody there, you know, to monitor you. Like when, when all of a sudden you're thrust into rehab, like I was, you know, I was put on a medication for like three or four days that helped keep me safe. Because if you're drinking heavily and you all of a sudden stop, you're, you're at a risk of seizures, uh, which, which could prove fatal. Um, so me getting up every morning and running hard was, was not <laughs> medically advisable the same way that running a marathon the day after I got out of rehab might not have flown over well with my GP. But to me, it was, it was very important to, uh, to know that I was still here and to know that I could still do something, uh, something significant and to just sort of be like, okay, again, I've got this. And I am, you know, I'm capable of, 
of reclaiming my life. So yeah, to, to answer your question, it's any anytime that we make like a significant lifestyle change, ideally we would do it gradually, incrementally. But yeah, when you when you go into rehab and all of a sudden you go from drinking, you know, the, the equivalent of a of a case of beer every day, um, when you just stop that altogether. Yeah, that was that was my next question. What did drinking heavily look like for you and for how long? Oh yeah, I uh, years. Um, I grew up in northeastern Wisconsin where, you know, drinking is, you know, a central thread of, of, of uh, culture and lifestyle. But it was first like when I was in college that the drinking started picking up and it was recreational. And because of, you know, drink Wisconsin and how pervasive it is in culture, I never really considered it a problem until I got into like my mid 30s. Uh, the, the problems really arose when I figured out. Um, and this was like three or four years before I went through rehab, I figured out that I could drink during the work day. I could appear in plain sight and nobody was any the wiser. So really as things snowballed at the height of my drinking or low point, depending on how we look at it, um, I would drink throughout the course of an entire work day. I would drink on the way to work. I would drink on the way home from work. And because I have like a mathematical brain, like I would, as, as things, as my tolerance built, I would like calculate how much I could have, um, which is a total fallacy in hindsight, but it got to the point where uh, it, I, you know, I would have, Probably if you like ran the, ran the numbers, like effectively the equivalent of like 25 macro brews in the course of a day. Um, yeah. Wow. Okay. So, but you, I guess, um, to get a better understanding of what it looks like to be a functioning alcoholic, you, um, cause this is all new to me. Um, in terms mm -hmm. of mental health, I have battled depression and anxiety. Gosh, uh, I think my first panic attack, I was 13. It just kind of sends me into this helpless space uh, that I've learned to, to manage. Um, but anyway, going back, so, so all of this is new to me. Um, what does it look like to be a functioning alcoholic um, to kind of know what your threshold is before you get bombed? <laughs> Yeah. It, I mean, you just keep, you keep moving the goalposts, right? Um, you know, it goes from, you know, two in an afternoon at work and being like, okay, I got away with it to, you know, more and more than stopping at the bar on the way home. And all the while, you know, realizing that no one's picking up on it, including my wife. Uh, again, like when, th when I was a fully involved house fire, I only drank during the workday because I, I hated my job. Um, and I felt stuck. So I would drink right up until, you know, I, I got home from work and then not let, you know, not let on that anything was wrong. I wouldn't drink at night. I by and large wouldn't drink over the weekends. And this is why every weekend I'd be like, okay, I got it this time. Um, you know, and occasionally my wife would find an empty or something and go through, we'd go through the mea culpa, you know, I'm, I'm never, you know, I've, we're done. I, I, I've got it. And then within days, you know, be right back in it again. Um, and it's tale as old as time, you know, it's, it's, 
we think that we've got it, but the power of alcohol, it's just, it's a beast, especially for somebody like me who, uh, you know, one of the ways that it was described to me and, you know, it's in the big book, uh, for, uh, those who are part of a uh, specific 12 step program that it's described as an allergy in that, when somebody like me has a sip of alcohol, my brain has like this allergic reaction. It's like, I need more. I need more. I need more. Um, and even that in and of itself was a bit of a relief where it's like, I was, I was dealt this hand, you know, this is part of my, uh, you know, this is part of my makeup. You know, this is, this is how God made me, you know, love it or leave it. This, this is part of me. So that, that in and of itself was a relief. Um, but th that kind of gives you a, a, you know, a picture of, of what it looked like for me. And then of course we get into the, you know, the cycle of, you know, beating myself up and being, you know, ashamed of myself. And, you know, just like I said, like self-flagellation, um, because here I am again, to circle back to the original point, a very successful person. So how do I have this problem that I can't beat? Um, and it's, it's not like I'm cured, by the way. Like, let's not have any illusions about this. I, uh, it's something that I'm still working on, still learning to love myself. And yeah, but, but I mean, it's, it's great though, too, because it's like I have so much room to grow, which I, I, you can't argue with that, right? Yeah, I think... Um... You know, anybody who's dealt with depression and anxiety and other mental health issues, addiction, um, I think that we are, every day is a choice for us, right? So every morning I wake up my eyes and some mornings I'm like, shit, like, <laughs> <laughs> like I have to exist today. Okay. Um, and every morning is a choice to, to love myself um, and love my beautiful family. Well, it's not a choice. I do because they're amazing. And <laughs> Oh, it's easy to love them, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, but love that they love me and understand why they love me because how many times do, don't we ask those who love us? Why? Like, mm -hmm. why do you love me? Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, I think that, you know, every day I choose to say they love me because I'm me and that's, enough mm -hmm. um so in a way maybe we get this front row seat to this opportunity um to make these choices every day to grow every day to love ourselves every day whereas those maybe who haven't had these um conversations within themselves haven't gotten a chance to be there but everybody could use a little bit of that growth every day and opportunity to love themselves yeah. ours is just more obvious and i mean let's be honest if you asked Marco or Izzy why they love you, they could give you a list of reasons and you'd question every one of them, wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> those are just things. Like what? Like those are just things, you know? Yeah. Um, and then I, I, you know, along the way, I've learned that we just love because we do, like because yeah. you just are. And that helps me uh, remind myself that people can love me for that reason too. Um, we've come a long way. So when, when did you sign up for this post rehab marathon? And, <laughs> and 
what got you to rehab? So when did you sign up for the marathon? Mm. And what was the point where you were like, okay, it's time for me to check into somewhere? Yeah, good stuff. Uh, I mean, we signed up for the marathon, the Milwaukee marathon. This would be the third time that we were doing it because my wife is from Milwaukee. It starts outside the Fiserv Forum, the home of, you know, our, your, uh, your Milwaukee Bucks. And uh, so we signed up, you know, in November, something like that. And, you know, training began in December. And, you know, training went as usual, like, like it always did you know, when we were getting ready for a marathon, you know, in, in fact, you know, my last run, my last long run before checking into rehab, uh, would have been probably the last, or I'm sorry, the, the, the second Sunday in March of 2019. And it was, you know, like 18 miles. And so, yeah, I mean, I really, I was ready to do like one longer one and then start tapering. Uh, and I had something of a forced taper, we might say, <laughs> because, you know, as that week went along, it wasn't an unusual week. I think that's important to point out. It wasn't like anything catastrophic happened that week. Um, it, it was like specifically, uh, and this is a trapping for a lot of folks, uh, the, the, the NCAA tournament started that week. So I would do this, you know, each year with virtually any sort of rite of passage that harkened back to like being in college and day drinking, where it'd be like, oh, the NCAA tournament starts today. You know, this like gives me license to, you know, to, to tie one on again. And so Thursday, that was the case. And then Friday, again, that was the case. And something happened that afternoon at work. And this was part of a pattern and again, this, you know, this, this lends to without sharing too much information, why my job was just killing me. It was getting late in the afternoon and there was a piece that was going to be our cover story in the weekend edition. And I had been asking over and over again, can you look this over and make sure everything's spot on because we got it ready to go. And it gets to the middle of the afternoon and I am, you know, told we need to blow this up. We need to, you know, we have X, X, Y, and Z questions that need answering. And it was basically just like left with that, you know, as, as somebody should be getting ready to like turn work off and be with their family for the weekend. And in that moment, I snapped rather than blowing up in the office, um, there, there, there's something that I'm coming to terms with at this, at this stage of recovery. And it's that, um, and I, I recently opened up uh, about this on a suicide prevention show, uh, a local show here in town, that I believe that I was trying to eventually take my own life with alcohol. Um, and that afternoon, I made, I made the decision that that was going to be the day. And I, I, I went and I got everything that I thought I'd need to do it. I parked my car nearby the airport, which I know is a minute detail that people don't need, but it's basically like you're taking the road to the airport and there's this like inexplicable little parking spot alongside the road. There's a place where I had sat many times and drank and I was like, here's where it's going to happen. And I, I, I vaguely remember like approaching what I considered to be sort of, you know, staring into the abyss and 
I just had this flash in my mind that I needed to message Kayla that not, not all hope was lost and that it was time to freaking surrender. It was time to stop feeling stuck in my job. It was time to, to bet on myself, so to speak. And so I did, I messaged Kayla. And of course, because she's Wonder Woman, she comes and picks me up, takes me home. And I pack like my go bag. Uh, we were, you know, I was gonna go to the ER An ambulance was gonna come and pick me up. And in my mind, I was gonna go from the ER straight to rehab. And here's where things get really, this is kind of a, a talking point for me. So I pack my bag, I say goodbye to my kids and I get into the, to the ambulance and I'm, you know, I'm losing it. I'm sobbing. I I'm yelling. And I told the, the paramedic, I said, you know, my life as I know it is over. And this guy, <laughs> this freaking guy, cool, calm, collected says, would that be so bad? if life as you know it is over and and it, it was it was a turning point I was like no that actually sounds really good and so the ambulance takes me to the hospital uh I I order you know some bad cafeteria food which which frankly was so amazingly delicious because I'd gotten so used to skipping meals so that I you know so that yeah Drinking yeah. on an empty stomach is a more profound effect. Um, <laughs> I enjoyed this cafeteria cheeseburger. And then this, the social worker comes in, talks to me, presents materials to me on rehab the same way that she had a couple of months ago, because this is the second time I was in this particular ER room, the same room. And I was like, I'm ready to go. Put, you know, <laughs> get, you know, put me in a van and let's go. I got my bag. I'm all packed. Let's go. And it was like, no, 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 you, you can't, you know, when we, when you leave here, you're going to have to call. And so basically I sat in this ER room and until I was sober at three in the morning. And then it was, you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. So I was discharged, confused, wandering around the parking lot, trying to decide whether I could walk home. And eventually, you know, message again, messaged Kayla, who again, answered the call. She piles our then five-year-olds into the car, comes and picks me up and takes me home. And I get a couple of hours of sleep. And then, I, you know, she wakes me up and asks, okay, what's next? And we sat on the edge of the bed and I said, honey, I, I just, I can't go back. I can't go back to that job. And she said, well, then you're not going back. And then I knew that I could make the call. So, <laughs> so, I, so I called Gateway Foundation where I was going to go through rehab and was told that there would be a bed ready for me on Monday. So again, it's that situation where it's like, just hang in there for a couple of days, keep that momentum somehow, and we'll get you to rehab. So um, you basically have to be brave three times over. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and here's, here, here's the key to that. First and foremost is Kayla, my wife. Second off, I was terrified of the reaction I was going to get from my family and friends when I laid all my cards on the table, but I did it, you know, called everybody one at a time and told them what I'd been going through and that I was going to rehab. 
And without exception, I was met with, wow, I had no idea. I love you. We got to get you some help. And again, that that's when I knew that I could do the work. And that weekend, I mean, even though I had all of that support, even though I had all that support, I still almost on multiple occasions thought about jumping in the car and, and, you know, just, just running back to my safe place. Um, but thank God, uh, you know, I, I was able to make it to Monday. We were able to get me some help. Now, do you have an opinion on what happens to those who don't have that? Why, why isn't there a social worker who can understand like a social worker in the ER who can understand that this might be the only chance to save this person um, let me help them through these steps. I, I can't wrap my head around the inhumanity of that. Yeah. It's, it's, there are social workers, you know, I spoke with one. It, it's the system that fails us. It's the inability to make that warm handoff that, that it's outside, you know, the, the allowances of the law. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a broken system. Um, I, one of my favorite episodes of my podcast is I had on this incredible dude, Corey Harrington. Um, I should put you in touch with him. He's an awesome guy. Uh, he was hooked on, uh, opioids. He had a shoulder injury. He was a minor league ball player. got hooked on opioids and spent eight years in that hell. And finally one morning he like, he caught that lightning in a bottle like I did. And he calls the hotline to say he needed help and they're like okay well the, you're you're outside our coverage area we're going to transfer you so he gets put on hold and cut off uh, hung up on effectively um and his case is another one where he could have you know by some act of god he went home and he told his brother and kept that momentum um and these these stories are, are, are happening every day, everywhere. Um, the, the, the system fails us. And that's, that's where conversations like you and I are having and why I do what I do is just to point out how absolutely absurd that is. Um, but yeah, I, you know, fortunately for me, again, privilege to the utmost, middle-aged white guy, affluent family, uh, affluent might be stretching it, but support from my parents, safety nets galore. And I still struggle to make it to Monday. So what, what does that say for people who are really under duress and don't have any support? Yeah. Yeah. And, but like you said, I'm hoping all of these conversations that I try to have here, um, I, I like shedding light on stuff that we don't talk about the things that we sweep in dark corners and we don't really want to discuss. Um, but they're important because people are living them. And, and um, Izzy was just in Susical, <laughs> which is like Horton hears a who. Mm -hmm. And I almost cried when they say the line, um, what is it? Uh, people are people, no matter how small they are, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, or no matter how small. Um, yes. Yes. So that's, that's the, uh, that's the moral here. <laughs> people yeah. are people. Oh, no matter Horton. where they are. We all need to be a little bit more like Horton, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it was such a good show. It was so cute. That's great. <laughs> so, 
So I want to talk about then that post rehab marathon. What did that, what was your, it was the day after you left rehab? Yeah. So yeah, what I, was you know, your, I, your mindset going into this? Like, hell, I'm just going to see what happens. Yeah. I, you know, I, I check out a rehab and, and my wife takes me straight to an AA meeting. You know, that was the plan was the 90, 90 meetings in 90 days. Like they, like they impress upon you. And so I did that. And then, you know, that night we drove and stayed at, uh, at her parents' house at my mother-in-law's place. And the next morning, I mean, we felt good and ready. I was like, you know, I want to hit my sub four marathon today. And I knew that I had all the ammunition to do it, you know, all the motivation in the world. And it's such a trip of a story because I went out too fast, like so many people do, but my body just felt amazing. Um, how many times have people said that? I got to, and I know this very specific number, because again, I'm a nerd and I love numbers. I got to, I, I, I pulled up lame with an, a pain in my leg. And I looked at my watch and I was at 7.83 miles and I never get cramps. I somehow I'm genetically uh, fortunate that way. So I, you know, I, I head to the medical tent and talk to the guy and you know, I think I got a cramp. He's like, all right, well, you know, he works on it a bit, gets me like the electrolyte wafers and, and he showed me like how to try to massage it out on my own. I'm like, okay. All right. And I get like a half mile down the road tops and it starts acting up again. So there was a certain amount of like, okay, I should just give up. This isn't my day. Um, I have, you know, limitless opportunities going forward to do this. But for some reason, it was like, you know what? I trust you, God. I, I trust me. I trust, I, I, I trust the process and the program. We're going to see what we can do today. And so effectively I ran like almost 18 and a half miles with, with this cramp in my leg. And then of course, as runners understand when you have an injury in your left leg, you know, eventually your right knee and your right hip start breaking down because of compensation. Um, but I managed to, you know, fast forward to the end, I managed to run a, uh, a three fifty five flat and it was that, that marathon was a religious experience in that the gratitude was just off the charts. Um, one of my favorite moments was this course has a bunch of the out and backs, maybe not a bunch of them, but it has a couple of those. And um, I think like a lot of runners, I, I, I get frustrated with them because it's like, I already saw this. I just saw this 30 <laughs> seconds ago. But being able to run past, you know, in the other direction of the elites and not like beat myself up and be like, oh God, I wish I was that fast. Um, like I was genuinely excited for them and in awe of them. And then maybe even more powerfully when I was going back in the other direction and running by, you know, the, the, the slower runners just like the sheer thrill of like being able to root people on. And I remember seeing my wife and just like tears, just bursting from my eyes, just screaming how proud I was of her. Um, just the gratitude. And like, I already started feeling what people talk about, like that deep connection with people when you're sober and when you're thinking clearly. Um, but that, la that last uh, mile, 
or the half mile or so was, was intense in that you get back down, you know, you're going back to downtown Milwaukee, which was my haunts, man. It was all the places where we closed the bars and where, you know, stupid decisions were made. And it was very cathartic to run past these places and be like, you'd think that it would be like, you know, fear or discomfort, but there was a certain feeling of like, I don't have to ever feel like that again. And there was just, you know, know, there was a certain energy that I was able to tap into in that last half mile or so. And um, actually like pushed all the way across the finish line sprinting. You know, I've always kind of fallen victim to like kicking too early and then sort of trotting across, but sprinted through the finish line, saw the kid from the medical tent and he looks at me, he says, man, I didn't think I'd see you again. That's funny. <laughs> and saw my buddy, Johnny Mack, who I have to give a shout out to. He was the one friend of mine who came and saw me in rehab and hugged him and, you know, sobbed into his shoulder and saw my dad and, you know, cried. And I just remember saying, like, I'm still here. You know, look what I can still do. Um, it was it was, it was a religious experience, you know? And I'm sure, you know, all, all of that and, and you've, you've done this race before. So you have a, okay, this is when I wasn't sober, but like, now this is what it feels like to run this and really take it all in. There must've been, were there times where you were like, well, I don't really remember that. Or I, I, you know, I never appreciated this part of the race as much as right now. Yeah. Oh, without a doubt. Um, And maybe it wasn't even so much the course. It was the neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. It was places that I had been dozens and dozens of times that I I wouldn't have remembered being there. Um, I think it was appreciating the roads that I was running on that I used to drive on drunk. Um, It was the the course the course you know it was it was pretty surreal to run that course knowing that that uh the future was bright um but i i never ran a race under the influence you know so i i had remembered the previous race it, it was the buildings and the neighborhoods and and the businesses and stuff um that yeah it was it was pretty cathartic to see it through a a different lens yeah i find that um the gratitude lens, everything is just brighter. Um, you know, everything, everything smells the same, but you can appreciate it more for what it is. Um, (laughs) you know, the sounds, uh, that maybe might've annoyed you before you're like, oh, well, so-and-so's, you know, working on their shed or, or, you know, um, yeah, that gratitude lens really is that, warmth that kind of feeds your soul yeah yeah i got a i got a fun trick for you (laughs) um last summer i had gotten in the habit of because we we've got a really nice trail system here in dekalb and my husky my two-year-old husky you know runs therefore she is so i get out on a lot of runs with her and i started uh I started mixing in occasionally jogging backwards to try to kind of mix up the muscle sets and stuff. Mm -hmm. And this is a very like 
cathartic thing to jog backward. Maybe this is just for me, but like jogging through the woods on a path and like watching the trees like go away from you and like cherishing the fact that like looking back at what you just passed through very it, it's it's very like it was very next level for me it, it struck me as as significant so <laughs> well because you, you think about it right um I'm very much like that too and you know growing up uh I felt um misunderstood so I kind of never voiced these things now I totally embrace my inner weird and it's no longer <laughs> inner it's totally outer weird um yeah. I am the kind of person <laughs> I'll turn to my husband and I'll say, you know, it really just bugged me out. I could have been born a dog. Like <laughs> this spirit is in this body. And like, the, this is me. Like I am the kind of person who has those moments of like, holy shit. Like I'm me. Yeah. Not anybody else, not anything else. I am like this. And how the hell did this happen? Yeah. Um, and then you just kind of get struck by the universe. Um, I, so I totally get it. It's that <laughs> moment where you're like, shit, I was just there and yeah. now I'm going forward, but I'm seeing where I, I get it. Yeah. It's a trip. Yeah. Um, and, and that little, um, exercise, it, it kind of speaks to this eternal, I'm not going to say struggle. I'm going to say opportunity to try to figure out how to balance looking back, being here now, and looking forward in that I am on such sturdy ground with my recovery. It is very few and far between where I, I even drinking even crosses my mind. However, I have to be prepared that should I be in a dangerous spot, I have to remember what it feels like to touch the hot stove. You know, I, I have to have all of my tools in order. Um, early in recovery, uh, I, I, I attended a lot of SMART meetings, which I'll just drop this in here that uh, SMART recovery is kind of like an alternative to AA where it's a support group, but it's more like forum based. So you're in a room, like chatting with people and we're comparing notes and working on tools together. And there was this guy, Bruce in my group. Um, and Bruce one day stops me. He's like, man, you use that word fear way too much. You use the word afraid way too much. Like you got to stop like peeking over your shoulder and like waiting for the boogeyman to catch you. You got to <laughs> stop being so afraid of alcohol. And I was like, at this stage of the game, brother, I need that fear. Fear is good when we use it to serve ourselves and when, when we can leverage it. But yes, there is less and less of that fear and there's more of being here and being present. Now, there's also, of course, one day at a time, which there's a lot to that. And meditating uh, I've recently started swimming and boy, you talk about an exercise where you need to be present or bad things will happen. <laughs> but I also think that you need to also be able to work towards something um, with the mentality that 
if you appreciate the journey and you know that there's going to be inc incremental gains that you're working towards something. But then again, you also have to strike the balance because nothing is that black and white or cut and dried. Then you have to strike the balance if you better enjoy the damn journey too, because if you run a 50K or a 5K or whatever it is that you do that you set out to do, or you celebrate your one year soberversary and you didn't enjoy the journey, then you're gonna be left with, oh shit, what now? So that's, that's a balance that I think we'll all be working on is figuring out how to balance then, now, and what's coming next. But here's uh, the thing that strikes me about everything you're saying is that, you know, we're talking about it in the context of your rehabilitation and your sobriety, but these are life lessons absolutely. for anyone. It's not to live in fear of dying, but to live in love of living. Oh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I, I, I want to piggyback. I want to piggyback on that. I was just having this discussion with somebody recently that I love uh, Buddhist teachings and practices. And of course, you were mentioning before, what if you were a dog? Who are you going to be in the next life, right? Because like the, the practice, the teaching is that like, there is no death. It's a matter of like your energy remains and it's manifested in some other way. Re you know, reincarnation is what a lot of people will call it. Um, I like the, the, the idea that I could be a cloud someday. That would pr be pretty terrific. Um, however, now that I'm sober and I'm properly medicated and I see my therapist and I run. And now that I've got all this program in place and I'm so connected with everybody and my friendships are great. I have never been so freaking terrified of dying mm. because this is so good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Another thing I'm trying to balance is like the understanding that people's energy is permanent. The people we've lost are still here in our hearts great grand wonderful but i don't want to die because i love this life now you had mentioned that now you swim i recently saw that you uh you did like kind of your own triathlon challenge <laughs> at the y yeah yeah, yeah. Well, i'm loving this swimming thing um you know i i spent so many years like talking to people who are triathletes and being like oh that'd be cool but i can't swim I'll sink. I'm terrified of water. Water doesn't mix with anxiety. I can't swim. I can't swim. I can't swim. I created this narrative for myself that I couldn't do it, but I wanted to, you know, I, I always wanted to be, you know, I want to be able to do all the things that I can and, you know, experience the smorgasbord of life. Uh, so for Christmas, I bought my wife a swim cap and I, you know, I bought myself one, two and the earplugs. We went out and we got our, um, the uh, goggles and and those super sexy like swimsuits and stuff that somehow I'm okay with wearing now um and just kind of went for it and the first couple of times in the pool was awful because I still had that narrative um I wanted to get to the other side of the pool so badly because you know my my breathing was awful my anxiety was running hot and so yeah it, it was it was really difficult at first and there, I, I'll, I'll run through this anecdote fairly quickly because if I don't, it could take forever. 
I had a moment where I tend to forget one thing every time I jump into the pool. And once I didn't have my goggles on my head, so I jumped into the water and swam a couple of laps and realized that my goggles had fallen off and sunk to the bottom of the pool. And I was like, that's it. I'm done. I, but I went to the lifeguard and I was like, uh, it, okay, here's, okay, here's how it played out. I said to him, I was like, did anybody turn in a pair of goggles? He was like, no, but I, I can see them out there. And they were at the bottom of the pool. I was hoping that they would have floated. And so I'm like, oh, that's fine. I'll go get them. I'll just swim down there and get goggles. This guy who I can barely float, I'm going to swim underwater to the bottom of an eight foot pool and get goggles. Well, obviously I tried and failed miserably and I was embarrassed. I was anxious. I was like, this was a good try, but I'm done. And right before I was ready to bail from right next to me in the next lane, I hear, oh, hey, Chris, it's my neighbor from two doors down who I've never seen at the Y, who we live in a town of 50,000 people. The odds of her being in the lane directly next to me are minuscule. And I explained her what was happening. And she's like, oh, I'll get them. Aww. Swims down, gets my goggles. I put them on and I, I start swimming again. And yesterday I swam a mile two wow. week, two weeks after that. I swam a freaking mile yesterday. And you know what? I swam today and it was junk. It, I, I, it would, today wasn't good. And, but it's, I'm able to give myself some grace and just know that it's incremental. Um, but yeah, so my wife and I are like looking at some triathlons. We want to do uh go easy on our joints for a little while and to, uh, I mean, when we trained for our 50k that we did last October, I mean, it was every weekend, like half of Saturday was just flushed for family time. Um, so we wanted to change things up and that's, that's what we're doing now. Uh, as, as it goes with the podcast, I always have people who are like trying to pick out races to do together. So at, at some point I'll buckle and, and do some trail races with folks, but, um, really, really into this whole triathlon thing, the, um, the swimming thing, now that I'm getting it down, like the Zen feeling that I have when I get out of that pool, when things are right, I, you know, I carry that into the rest of my day. So, um, I strongly recommend it for folks who might've convinced themselves that they can't do it. Like, like I did. Yeah. I'm raising my hand. <laughs> So there's, um, there is a Jersey girl triathlon that a couple of friends of mine, well, one friend of mine, uh, she's done several times, but she's, she's just awesome. She just can get out there and do it. Um, and another friend of mine, I think last I heard, she's giving it a try this, uh, this year and it intrigues me, but I've got, I've got other goals coming up. Um, I want to sign up for, for a fall marathon. I haven't decided which one, but I think it might be the wine glass marathon up in uh, Corning, New York. Okay. Um, and I'm just trying to improve my time on running. And then I will give, I, I, I do, I want to try a triathlon, but it is, it is the swimming. Um, mm -hmm. I would do it like a sprint triathlon where it's not as, oh, yeah. not as long. Um, oh yeah. But yeah. So tell me about this ultra marathon that you did last year. What mar which one was it? Uh, it's called the Hennepin 100, um, okay. which obviously we didn't do the 100, we did the 50K. Um, it's put on by Ornery Mule Racing, 
which does a lot of events here in the Midwest. They put on great events. They have incredible uh, aid stations. Um, this was cool because I, I haven't used my Fitbit to, to track my pace outside of that race. I, I pro I've probably used it two or three times to track pace in the past year. Like I finally just got to the point where it was like, it's, it's, it's stressing me out too much. I'm just going to go run for the love of it. And I managed to embrace the idea that I could run comfortably. Um, in fact, when I would use my Fitbit, it would be more so a matter of, uh, okay, am I going slow enough? Okay. Yeah. While we were training for this thing and it was neat. Um, but yeah, the idea of, of, of embracing, like going farther rather than going faster was pretty cool. And I love, uh, I love the ultra and trail running crowd in that it is such a family atmosphere. Um, like any road race is exciting and the energy is amazing, but there's something about trail running where it's, there's, there's just a more casual, relaxed atmosphere that I really like. Um, now with this 50 K it started at five in the evening and you know, so after like two hours, the sunset, so you're running in darkness with a headlamp. Yeah. And it got lonely out there. Uh, there was a stretch where I went about five or six miles that I did not see anybody. So I'm just Ooh. out there on a, a straight path, wearing a headlamp. Um, and then my earbuds died. And so I got to hear like every creature out in the woods. Which is... <laughs> you're telling the story and it's freaking me out a little bit. <laughs> It was scary. And, you know, I got to like around the marathon distance and my mind started breaking down. My body started breaking down. And I, I really was on the brink of having a panic attack where I was like, gosh, I hope the Kayla's okay. Um, and yeah, so the last five miles were, were really brutal. It was hard. Uh, there is one thing that I will say for trail running though, because this was on crushed limestone. I got done with the race. And I sat down on a metal chair and a couple minutes later I stood up and it was like, wow, that should not have been that easy. So much easier on the joints. Yeah. Running on a path. Uh, it was an experience. It was, uh, you know, those, those last five miles of really like being up in your head, being in uncharted territory at like, 9 30 at night like my wife and i we we go to bed at 9 30 yeah. we're old you know our kids get up at five um so it was a whole other realm but it was just it was insanely rewarding and i think that's actually what kind of set up the fact that like we're taking on the triathlons this year is it's like all right we we did a 50k last year don't necessarily need to do a marathon or anything this year let's change it up so i i i definitely recommend it uh, just, you know, the, the time commitment is, is a lot. It is even marathon training it, for, for me was a lot. So you bring up a good point um, for someone who, you know, is constantly working through their anxiety. How is this time in your head when you're out doing these longer runs? Or you know, I guess when you're swimming, you're so focused on you know, your arms, your legs, and your breathing. So there's not much else to think about in between. But otherwise, when you are exercising, how's the, how, how are you in your head? Um, 
you know, it's, you know, as I've gotten more into meditation, it's kind of like the ongoing body scan where I really try to focus on literally what my muscles are doing at that time. Um, and it's not easy. I mean, like anybody who's tried meditating, like it is the, it is the human brain's like tendency to just all of a sudden wonder, uh, how to spell cornucopia or to, to wonder, to wonder whether they clicked send on that email that morning. I mean, where the hell do these thoughts come from? But it's, I'm laughing so hard because there are times when I'm running and I spell random words. to myself. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, and it can help pass the time, but you know, it, it in term, I mean, like, like I talked about when you're swimming, it's like, you better not be, you know, wondering, you know, what the square root of 144 is while you're trying to focus on your form. Or uh, breathing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so swimming, I mean, it really has been grounding. You know, until I got into that, though, uh, in terms of anxiety, like, you know, went out for a long run. I think that's where, you know, doing like the 50 K was great because it was no longer a matter of like, okay, I need to finish an X amount of time. Um, and I guess this is the point where, I'll, where I'll like maybe bring things home here a little bit. When I, the first, when I was first starting with swimming you know, I was trying so hard to get to the other end of the pool and I was hyperventilating, you know, I would, maybe that's a strong word, but I was having a really hard time and I got out of the pool and our friend who's a lifeguard was like, you know, you got to stop being so competitive and trying to get to the other side. And I was like, it's not a competitive thing. It's that I feel uncomfortable in the water. I feel scared. And he was like, okay, well, if you just focus on your form, if you do these three things and he gave me some pointers, he was like, you're actually going to end up going faster. And it blew my mind that, yeah, when I just focused on my form and those few pointers, all of a sudden, like I, I, I grabbed some breath and be like, holy shit, that's the, I'm like almost there already because I was expending so much energy, like breathing heavily and panicking and gasping for breaths that I was not moving very quickly. And it was that way with the 50 K where I ended up running it in like five Oh seven, because I was not focused on speed at any point. It was like, I'm just going to go for a run for five hours, make sure that I don't put myself through too much pain or push it too hard. And I guarantee that if I'd gone out there on a mission, you know, and I'd been like, you know, tracking with my watch, I probably wouldn't have, I, I probably would have been out there another half an hour. Um, it was letting go, just yeah. let, letting go goes a long way. Well, that's the thing, right. With, with running, especially because we're not elite runners or, you know, doing anything really, we're not we're not racing really against anyone but ourselves. So it's okay to just let go. Um, mm -hmm. It's hard though. It's not, not always easy, especially when you're setting these, these goals for time. A lot of times, once you've run your first marathon or your first half or your first 5k, it always kind of turns into um, getting faster. And I remind myself often, why did we start this running journey? You beat me to it. Yes. <laughs> Yes, you can, you can focus on speed and have goals 
but never lose track of why you're doing it. Yeah. One thing I will mention about sobriety is that those first few months, now that you no longer have, you know, something numbing your emotions, those emotions burn white hot for good or for worse. You know, the highs are way up there and the lows are way, way down there. So you know, if folks are thinking about cutting back, you know, if, if, uh, if, if, if that's something that folks are interested in, you, you have to be mentally prepared for the fact that you are going to feel all the feels very hard. And I mean, I imagine it also has to do with just, gosh, coming to terms with what you've been through, what this journey has, has cost and what you're going to also gain. Um, yeah. it's just, it's, it's a real mind F I think I, I would imagine it is. And there's just like the literal science of it too, where, oh, now I'm going to get totally nerdy, but like, if you keep bombarding, you know, yourself with, with substances, you know, that, that dopamine hit that it used to give you gets lower and lower as your tolerance goes up, like your baseline goes down and down to where, you know, where you used to be like normal. Now you're drinking barely gets you back up to that point in terms of the dopamine hit. So yeah, as, as that gets out of your system, you start coming toward your baseline and holy buckets, you know, the highs are getting high again. And then, you know, it's kind of like Newton's law of motion where, yeah, if, if you're going to, if your high is going to be that high, well then, you know, there's, there's another, en an other end of the curve. Uh, it's, it's a trip. Um, but everything eventually starts to level out. Uh, first few months are hard they they, yeah. they really are and that that's where support is is such a huge thing and another thing that i really bang on is that like i i i lapsed uh, a few weeks after i got out of rehab and it would have been easy to just go you know right back down down the hole again and i try to really drive home to people that i really believe that recovery is cumulative not consecutive in that we're gonna have setbacks in life and it's, you know, how we respond to it. And if we love ourselves enough to say, okay, well, I, I, I screwed up, but I'm still me, you know, those three, four months or 18 years of sobriety, those are still mine. You know, I mean, look at Dak Shepard. He had like 15 years of, of sobriety and, and last year he relapsed and, you know, he's, he's back to, you know, you know, kicking ass again. Um, but there is like this huge stock put into like, I'm approaching a thousand days. And sometimes I'm like, do I want to keep sharing this? Because like, it's, it's a little bit potentially toxic for people who might be like, Oh, I'm never going to reach that. So why try? Uh, so cu cumulative, not consecutive is something I really bang on. Yeah. I was going to ask you about that. Cause you had mentioned it in, in your podcast and I was interested in, in that concept. And it's, not at all the same. And I am not trying to compare it. But the one thing that came to mind is when you are training for a marathon and you suffer an injury four weeks before the marathon and you have to take two weeks off, when you get back to running, it's not like you lost all those miles that you trained on before. You just, you know, you got to ease back into it but you yeah. can still run that marathon. It's a perfectly good comparison. These uh, are, you know, these are universal themes. You know, this is, this is brain training. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I guess, you know, 
Um, in the great uh, words of Aerosmith, life's a journey, not a destination, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's Steven Tyler, man, he was on to something. He's a great philosopher. <laughs> uh, but it is, you know, life is a marathon. It's not a sprint. Um, and, and sobriety, I guess, is, is also a marathon. It's not a sprint. It's you're working toward it every day. Yep. Absolutely. And, and life is a highway. I want to ride it all night long. I, I here I go again on my own. Oh yeah. All right. All right. I have had so much fun chatting with you. Um, we went everywhere. We went around the world and back in this conversation. Um, I think we shared a lot of really important things. Um, you know, a really hopeful, but very realistic story that I think that a lot of people can, can relate to regardless whether it's about sobriety or dealing with depression or anxiety, or even just, you know, making, making it through whatever is, you know, going on in their lives through, you know, we're still living through a pandemic. And, um, one thing that's become evident is that the way we were living before is not sustainable. Um, and people have had to make shifts and changes. So having these conversations are super is super important now more than ever. And I appreciate your candidness and your openness. Of course, this is this has been amazing. This is this has been kind of like a good you know a good run for me that I'll I'll, I'll ride this through the afternoon. So, awesome. uh, yeah, I mean you've got the mental health and optimism stuff covered. I would like to just point out that if if people are struggling with, you know, with, with recovery and addiction to, to please reach out to me, uh, 40,000 steps at gmail.com. You know, I'll, I'll definitely couch that in the fact that the first thing they should do is they should Google, you know, uh, uh you know, addiction recovery or, you know, suicide prevention. That's the first place to go. But, you know, if I can provide a little bit of like a safe space where you just want to compare notes, please, you know, reach out to me, but this has been so much fun and I'm eternally grateful that you had me, uh, that you had me on. Thank you. And I will, I'll add, um, Chris's information in the show notes. I will, any resources that Chris feels are the best ones to share. I will share those. I will share the, uh, suicide prevention hotline in the show notes. Um, and any kind of resource for anyone who feels like they just can't do another day. Um, I will put all of those in the show notes. Please be sure to check out the show notes for all those links. And as always, I would love to hear from you. Shoot me an email at runningonoptimism@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Look forward to hearing from you.